Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, God works all things after the counsel of His will. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 tells us Jesus upholds all things by the word of His power. It's been said that providence is God's hand fits snugly into the glove of human events. And I really like that description. Providence is God's hand fit into the glove of human events. That He is at work. The hand in the glove is not always seen, but it is apparent in what is happening, in what is moving. It is God moving man, and not the other way around. We would, even as believers from time to time, we would purpose to move God, to bring Him in our direction, to, to, to bring Him into our will, all the while He's working to bring us into His. He is the mover, and we are the moved. The will of God is not tied to the whims of man. doesn't mean God doesn't listen. It doesn't mean God doesn't want to hear from us. It doesn't mean the Lord isn't interested in our will and our desires. But it's His will that He seeks to accomplish in and through us. And His will is flawlessly executed. It's perfectly administered. And His program remains relentlessly underway. But this is the best part. In all that God's doing and in the will that that He is upholding by His power, in all of this, God invites us along. He invites us to come, to be part of the program. To be involved in what He's doing in the world. To align ourselves, as Les likes to say, to quickly align ourselves with what He's doing. The invitation remains out there for people of faith to join Him in the things that He's doing. Further into our study of Esther tonight, over in chapter 4, verse 14, is the most famous verse of the book. And I'd like to start there and just read that verse to you. Mordecai, the uncle of Esther, who we'll meet in a few moments here, is speaking, sending a message back to Esther at at the moment of crisis in this story. And he says, If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty, and here's the famous line, for such a time as this. For such a time as this. I begin with that verse, however, because... Mordecai says something amazing. He says, if you remain silent, Esther, if if you don't act, if you don't join God in His will, in essence, is what's being said here. If you don't act for the people of God, you know what? Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from somewhere else. In other words, if you don't align yourself with God's will, He's still going to get His will done. You're just going to miss out in the joy and the opportunity of doing what He's doing. And so the invitation is to us. Do what He's doing. Align ourselves with that. He's going to accomplish His will. He will obtain complete victory when all is said and done. And we can either choose to be the glove in the hand, outside the hand of, of His providence, flexing and moving in His will, or we can choose not to. And if we choose not to be in His will, the loss is ours. But He's still going to move. Now, the book of Esther, as we began to see on Sunday, is unique in the biblical library. God doesn't speak. God isn't named. He isn't even called on one single time in prayer. He's not even alluded to. He seems on the surface, anyway, to be completely absent. And yet, His presence is unmistakable. 
It, it builds even. As we go verse by verse and chapter by chapter deeper into the story, the presence, what God is doing, becomes so unmistakable that you can hardly wonder why, or hardly understand why someone would say God is not present in this book. And you'll see that again as we go. His presence is there. Though, though hidden... Though working as an undercurrent of sorts, have you ever been in the uh, ocean currents? Now, I grew up in Southern California and spent my summers out in the water. Uh, every day we would hop in the car and head to the beach. I was about 10 minutes from the beach, and we'd be out on the beach body surfing and surfing and relaxing and, and you know, tanning and all that goes with it. And you had to watch out for the undertow. But there was no question that there was an undertow, that there was an undercurrent. If you got caught into it and pulled out, you knew... And the same is true here in the hiddenness of God in the book of Esther. There is an undercurrent of the work of the Father. An undercurrent that, as I promise you, it will be unmistakable as we go forward. Esther's name, we talked about again on Sunday. And if you didn't hear Sunday, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. Uh, before this Sunday and then before next Wednesday night get caught up on it because there are a lot of things that we, we talked about and shared that I'm not going to go go into tonight. But Esther's name means I am hidden. I am hidden. Esther in the Hebrew. The hidden one. And truly she is. The Jewish maiden turned queen of Persia. This hidden Jewess there in the court of the greatest nation on earth at the time. Her background, her people remain hidden to the king and to the courts of the king. That is until the decisive moment. That is Mordecai's such a time as this. But the real hidden treasure in the story of Esther is Yahweh. It's the Lord Himself. Now, I I mentioned on Sunday the Hebrew lettering. There are four verses where you see in an acrostic form, when you take the words in the verse and you look at the first letter of each word, it forms, it spells out the acrostic Yahweh, Jehovah, God's name. And I told you I would get into more of that. And as I started to study it and think, how am I going to present this? I thought, this is going to be too much and we can spend the whole time on this and miss the rest of the story. So here it is for you, okay? And it's just laid out and you can take it home with you and just study it and look at that and think about it on your own time. But it's absolutely fascinating. that It's almost as if God knows He's putting a book that, that His name isn't mentioned. And so, just for fun, it's like He can't help embedding His name in the providence of what He's doing. He can't help expressing Himself. And that's what He does. And that's what the the hand of providence is about. Now all that to say, the book of Esther is just, it's a great story. And it's also what I've discovered to be one of the most encouraging sections of scriptures for believers today. Because it reveals God's work behind the scenes. And that's something, you know, we we talk so much about wanting to see the hand of God. So much about wanting to hear God speak to us. And all that is important. But sometimes we can get discouraged. It's, It's unfortunate in some churches where they will actually measure your level of righteousness based on how many times you've heard God speak audibly lately. And a person sitting in a church like that who hasn't heard God speak starts to feel smaller and smaller and smaller. Well, God put the book of Esther in the Bible to say something loud and clear to us. You may not hear Him, you may not see Him, but He is at work. You might not see Him in person, but you cannot mistake His moving in and among us in the world. And that's so much of what is in 
the book of Esther, this behind-the-scenes, providential, hand-in-glove work of God. And He does it to draw faith out of us. To increase our faith and to draw that faith out of us. Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Psalm 121, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. That's providence. And that's the key theme as we open up the book of Esther, chapter 1, verse 1. It took place in the days of Ahasuerus, which is actually pronounced Akashbarosh. (laughs) I'm probably going to say Ahasuerus because it's easier to say, but it's Akashbarosh. In the days of this, this king who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days as King Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus, yeah, that's it. Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was at the citadel in Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, a hundred and eighty days. Six months, king. And when these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to the least, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns, and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. The drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion, for so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. Which, by the way, is how a country gets into trouble. When everybody is doing according to the desires of each person. (laughs) Queen Vashti, verse 9, also gave a banquet for the women in the place which belonged to King Akash Barosh, who is Xerxes. Xerxes, who reigned from 485 to 465 B.C., Xerxes, who is the father of Artaxerxes, who we already met back in Nehemiah chapter 2. Artaxerxes is the one who signs that great decree that Daniel prophesied about that would kick off God's program for Israel. Well, his father is Xerxes. His father is king here now in, in Persia. Xerxes is the name. Akash Varosh is the title. Ahasuerus, as we pronounce it, is not the name, it's his title. It's a Persian title for the king, and the Persian title itself meant King of Kings. King of Kings. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, the prophet Daniel said, It is the Lord who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. Why is that? Because the Lord is the King of Kings. But we can't seem to help getting kind of full of ourselves, especially as we stand higher and higher in positions of authority and rule here on planet Earth. What's ironic is though Akash Varosh in the Persian means king of kings, the equivalent word in the Hebrew language means I am poor and silent. I am poor and silent. Interesting, because our rulers, our world can be noisy and proud and arrogant. And if you don't believe me, just watch the flurry of self-importance going on in climate change conferences in Copenhagen this week. I'm not going to give my political perspective on that. 
Okay, I just did. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1 says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? Which I think would be a great opening verse for the conference this week. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rule... I know some of you might disagree. That's okay. You can be wrong and I can be right and we can still get along fine. The kings of the earth take their stands and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. Akashvorosh. I am king of kings. No, you are poor and you are silent before the true king of kings the Lord of Lords, our God and Father, who is truly the King. Now, it's interesting that these opening verses tell about a massive six-month-long feast. One of the biggest, if not the biggest, and longest in history. And Ahasuerus, this Xerxes, invites all these men in, and from history we can get a determination. We can begin to understand what was going on. This was not just about showmanship. It wasn't just showing off the kingdom. This was a political move. He is trying to gather in a coalition. This, my friends, in political truth, this feast is a war party. At the time, there were rumblings to the West. There were problems for Persia. Persia, though the great and mighty world leader, and this always happens, whoever happens to be the superpower better not believe or take stock in their own superpowerdom for too long because someone else always comes along. Daniel prophesied this, we'll see in a moment. But this new power that was threatening from the West was Greece. Greece was rising in its strength and in its ability. And it was threatening the kingdom of Persia. So Xerxes, he calls in his princes and political allies from 127 provinces all throughout Persia. From India down to Africa to the Fertile Crescent, including parts of, well, including Israel in that. He invites allies and, and political princes from parts of Asia Minor, even extending into Europe. Persia was a, a vast empire at that time. And he brings all these men together and he is trying to sell them on a war plan against Greece so that he might maintain world dominance and their wealthy lifestyles. This is what's going on. He's showing them all the opulence of Persia and the citadel of Susa. Look at all that we have. Isn't it great? Isn't it wonderful? You don't want to lose this, do you? Then we better prepare to go to war against the Greeks. It would have been interesting to see them all flying in from all 127 provinces and their limos and Learjets. And I imagine the carbon footprint from that six-month feast was huge at the time. (laughs) In spite of, however, political intrigue, Xerxes becomes a little too full of himself. He thinks a little too highly of himself and he probably becomes a little bit too full of his wine and he takes a step too far and it takes his wife Vashti to knock him off his high horse. Verse 10. On the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman... Vista, Harbona, Bigtha, Abatha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry and his wrath burned within him. 
I mentioned Sunday that we know historically that Xerxes was somewhat of an erratic, eccentric king. And when he got angry, this guy got angry. He lost it. There is one story from history told where he had a bridge that was built by 300 men. And this this bridge was, was nearly completed when a huge storm rose up on the sea. And at the inlet where the bridge was built, it began to be bashed. And, and ultimately the bridge fell and was destroyed. Along with some of his ships and some of his men. Xerxes, when he discovered this, when news reached him, got so angry... He literally went down to the seashore and he began beating on the waves in his anger. Now I know none of you have ever done that. You bang your shin on a coffee table and kick the coffee table for getting in your way. This is what Xerxes was doing. I mean, this guy kind of lost it. Stupid ocean, you know. I mean, who does he think he is? And then he had the 300 men who built the bridge. He had them executed. So this is the kind of man he was. A little strange in the head, as so many rulers tend to be. The Bible says, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, Be angry. It's alright. You're going to get angry. But do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. See, that's the problem with anger, is when we begin to lose control of ourselves, Satan then can step right in and, and... direct us to do something or encourage us or draw us to do something we wouldn't normally do when we're in our right mind. There's great wisdom in pausing when you feel anger rising up in you. I I love the the picture of Jesus doing that. Jesus went into the temple. The last week of his life, there was already so much pressure that had to be weighing down on him. He knew what was about to happen. Walks into the temple, he sees the money changers, who by the way, three years prior, he had already cleared out once. And he comes back in and he sees the whole thing taking place again. And he leaves. And he goes that night uh, probably to Lazarus' house. Spends the night out there. Comes back the next day after having prayed about it, processed it, worked it through. Makes a whip of cords. Turns over the tables. Drives out the money changers. Lets the pigeons fly. But he does it in complete control. Oh, he's angry and it is a righteous anger. He's angry, but he does not sin. And that's what we're called to as followers. At any rate, this Xerxes was not a man you wanted to mess with. He might beat the waves and upset the sea. Verse 13. Vashti has crossed him. He's angry. And the king said to the wise men who understood the times, this would be his ruling council, for it was the custom of the king, so to speak, before all who knew law and justice and who were close to him, Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marcina, and Memucan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. According to law, what is to be done with, king, with Queen Vashti because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs? In the presence of the king and the princes, Memucan said, Queen Vashti, has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence. But she did not come. 
This day the ladies of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's conduct, probably my wife, the guy's thinking, will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media so that it cannot be repealed, that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. Well, when the king's edict, which he will make, is heard throughout all the kingdom, great as it is, then all the women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. This word pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukam proposed. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, that every man should be the master in his own house, and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. Mamukam speaks out. And I mentioned this on Sunday, I am convinced he is speaking from his own experience. He's already had a wife get all up eating his face and he wants her taken down. And he sees this opportunity and it's amazing how quickly and how easily the mind of of this Xerxes is, is swayed by his counsel. The truth is, however, whatever's going on with Mamukan and Vashti and Xerxes and all this is that we see another example of how the curse is playing out. The curse, the original curse, when the Lord said to the woman in Genesis 3.16, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Men and women, ladies and gentlemen, understand that is a curse. That is not how it was intended to be. It was never God's intention for the man to rule over the woman. It was never the intention of the Lord for the woman to try to undermine the man. And yet, since the curse was laid out, we in this world have had tension between male and female. In marriage, trying to figure out our roles and how to make it work. You know how that tension gets lifted? In Jesus Christ. Because when a man and a woman come together with Jesus at the center, suddenly we realize something precious. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus, effectively on the cross, lifted the curse. Oh, He lifted the curse of sin in our lives, but more than that, every aspect of the curse is lifted. Death is lifted from us. We may die the physical death, but spiritually, we will live forever with Jesus. And if we're here when He calls us home, if we're alive at the time of the rapture, we won't even taste the physical death. The curse is lifted. The curse of man and woman having to duke it out in a marriage. First order of business in a marriage that's struggling is to return both parties to Jesus Christ. Wives, you want to love your husbands more? Love Jesus more. Husbands, you want to be a better husband to your wife? Focus more on Jesus Christ. And as you focus on Him together, the marriage is uplifted. The curse is removed in Jesus. Now the great thing about this declaration here that uh, King Xerxes makes at the Council of Mamukan is that it plays right into the hand of providence. This happens and God immediately, hand in glove, moves it to His will. 
uses it for His direction. Behind the scenes, He is working to save His people even before before the threat arose. He is placing now, He is going to place Esther into the perfect position to do His will at the right time, at the right place for such a time as this. Now, between chapters 1 and 2, there's a bit of significant history that happened. I'll just point this out to you, that Xerxes did in fact lead Persia and his coalition of these princes from the 127 provinces out to a very famous battle against the Greeks called the Battle of Thermopolis. You may have heard about this or read it back in in, uh, world history. But in the Battle of Thermopolis, the mighty Persian army came against the smaller but very fast-moving Greek army and the Greeks waylaid them. The Greeks wiped them out. This is the beginning of the end, truly, for Persia. It would take years for Persia finally to crumble and Greece to come into full reign and full power. But this is where it started, between chapters 1 and chapter 2 of the book of Esther. Which is important to understand because as chapter 2 opens up, Xerxes is returning home from that battle. He's weary, he's bummed out, he's been wiped out, What is a man to do in this position? He's missing his wife. He's missing Vashti. We see that in the opening of verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Interesting. He remembers her. He's thinking about her. Meanwhile, the hand of providence displays itself perfectly. Even beyond the story of Esther, and understand what's going on here, the hand of providence globally is at work. The prophet Daniel declared four world powers would rise. He declares this a hundred years prior. Daniel says there were going to be these four world powers. You remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream, those who have studied Daniel. How he dreamed of this great statue, this this head of gold, and these arms of, of silver. This belly of bronze, these legs of iron, and these feet of partially mixed iron and clay. And and Daniel comes in and gives a description of those world powers. And we know, looking back, they perfectly match and fit Babylon, the head of gold. Medo-Persia, the arms of silver. Greece, the belly of bronze. And Rome, the legs of iron. And of course, the feet of mixed iron and clay, well, that's, that's a kingdom yet to come. We'll talk about that eventually when we get to the the book of Daniel. But we see these four kingdoms were prophesied ahead of time. Babylon rises and then is defeated by the Medes and the Persians. And now the Medes and the Persians are on the verge of being defeated by the third world power, which would be Greece, which ultimately would be defeated by Rome, just as Daniel said would happen. So globally, the hand of providence is working his will. He's doing what he needs to do to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Locally, locally right here in the capital of Persia, he is raising up Esther to a place of prominence from which she can be God's instrument to save. Verse 2. Yeah, verse 2. The king's attendants who served him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. I can see he's bummed out. They're trying to lift his spirits. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given to them. Let me just point something out about the eunuchs. The idea behind the eunuch was that the king would have men who would be literally would be castrated 
and then would be put in charge of the harems. Thinking that by castrating the men that that would take care of their desires and there wouldn't be any problems. Well, <laughs> it didn't work. It didn't work. The guys who were in charge of the harems, they had their own fun. But just wanted to give you that little aside. Verse 4. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti. And the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. Now there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Ya'er, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had take, been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. He was bringing up Hadassah. Remember Hadassah, Esther, Esther's Hebrew name, which means myrtle tree or joy. He's bringing up joy. That is Esther. I am hidden. His uncle's daughter, for she had no mother or father. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Mordecai's name means... Let me wait. I'll tell you what Mordecai's name means in a little bit. But it came about when the command and the decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa into the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him, so he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace, and transferred her and her maids to the best place there in the harem. Verse 10. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. Every day, Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. Now when the turn of each young lady came to go into King Ahasuerus, after the end of her twelve months, under the regulations for the women... For the days of their beautification were completed as follows, and I think this is just amazing. Six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women. I mean, this king wanted to make sure that they were wrung out, and wrung through, and worked out, and put back together the way he wanted them to look. Incredible. Verse 13 says, The young lady would go into the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. And in the evening, and here's the rule, the law, she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem to the custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go, not again go into the king unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. You did not approach the king unless he called you in. What we have going on here in chapter 2 is the Miss Persia pageant. Okay? It's one of the first beauty pageants that we have recorded in history. And these women prepared to go into the presence of the king literally for a year. Six months of oil of myrrh to soften and sweeten the skin. Six more months of spices and cosmetics to alter their aromas, I guess, and fill in the potholes. You know, get them all ready. And I was thinking about this today, how much emphasis is placed on physical beauty in pagan cultures. And I'm so glad America's not like that. (laughs) That we don't spend inordinate amounts of time on the external and the physical and the temporal. Beauty that we all know is in decay. And there's nothing we can do about it. And I've talked about this from time to time before, but here's, here's an idea. What if we were to give Jesus 
not even more time, but just equal time with the amount of time we spend in front of a mirror. I mean, take that on a daily basis. How much time do you... And a lot of us guys, you know, I'm five or ten minutes and I'm good to go. I don't want to spend much time in front of the mirror, frankly. But how much time do you spend in the morning primping and printing and preparing to go out for the day? An hour? 45 minutes? Hour and a half? I'm not going to ask you to admit how much... But just think, okay, measure that. Take a little timer. Time it tomorrow morning. And determine to give Jesus the same amount of time that you give the personal appearance. You know, I think that would really alter us if we did just that. Just that much. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.8, For bodily exercise profits little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. An internal beauty that, that spawns into eternity. And that's what we're called to. Well, here in the story, the girls get gussied up. But apparently there is something about Esther beyond the spices and the cosmetics and the oil of myrrh. There's a hidden quality in Esther that outshines them all. She garnishes favor. Everywhere she goes, she becomes favored in the king's court. Well, Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, verse 3, Your adornment, and he's speaking to the wives, he says your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses. Let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. And by the way, men, we could hear the same thing. The amount of emphasis on male physical appearance and working out and and how we deal with ourselves physically as men is kind of ridiculous in our society, to be honest. Let our adornment gang be the imperishable quality of the heart. That's what God's looking for in us. Well, verse 15 then tells us, When the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, came to go into the king, she did not request anything except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus to his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. And we're told the king loved Esther more than all the women. She found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. The hand of providence is setting the crown right where he wants it to be. It's perfect. Then the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his princes and servants. He also made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. When the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther did what Mordecai told her as she had done when under his care. Esther, I am hidden. So here she is. We've got an insider. We have a spy, as it were. A a double agent for the Lord who is there inside the capital of Susa, the greatest nation on the face of the earth at the time. Now this next little excerpt, this next little three-verse story is very significant in the overall story. Perhaps you haven't even heard it. But it tells us in those days when Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's officials, 
from those who guarded the door became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. In other words, Mordecai heard of a plot to kill the king. Verse 22, the plot became known to Mordecai and he told Queen Esther and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now, when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a gallows and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. Little story. And it comes back to have great significance. Again, God working His will silently and quietly behind the scenes. It's been said that big doors... Big doors swing on small hinges. And in this case, the big door is the entire future of the nation of Israel and the little hinge is Mordecai's integrity. You will see in a moment how Mordecai's integrity, he hears about this, and though the Persian ruler is not really his king, certainly is not one who follows after his God, Mordecai still does the right thing. And he lets the warning, he lets the the threat be made known. And because the little, the little hinge of Mordecai's integrity is there, the great door of Israel's future will be saved, as we'll see in coming verses. But for the moment, what Mordecai did, it goes unrewarded. There's no statement about what was done for Mordecai, how he was taken care of, how the king said, Oh, thank you, Mordecai, you saved my life. Let me give you a, a prominent place in my kingdom. Nothing like that. I want you to be encouraged because Hebrews 11.39 tells us that after listing all the people of great faith that all these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. Don't be disappointed when your efforts when your choice to do the right thing is not rewarded not even noticed. I mean, if, if I had a nickel for every unnoticed act of kindness and service that goes on in this fellowship, I could retire today. There is so much that happens that no one, so much that you do in service to the Lord that no one will ever pat you on the back for. And sometimes that can get a little tiresome. You know, sometimes the flesh rises up in us and we say, you know, it would be nice just to get a card. <laughs> you know? It would be nice if the, you know, someone gave, gave me a Starbucks card or something. You know, it would be nice if someone acknowledged what I'm trying to do here. Don't you understand? I'm just trying to serve the Lord. Can't someone acknowledge that? Hey, don't be disappointed when your efforts are not noticed by men. Every single one is noticed by God. What did Jesus say? He says, I tell you the truth. Someone who gives a cup of cold water to a child in my name will not lose his reward. God sees. He's paying attention and He is tracking everything you do in the name of Jesus. We're going to see this with Mordecai as the story unfolds before us. Now, the score, if we were watching this as a movie, would turn now to a minor key. The music would get a little more serious. And the plot thickens. Verse 1, chapter 3. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman. Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. Haman. His name means magnificent. Mr. Magnificent. And he is sure of this himself. This guy is pompous and arrogant and thinks very highly of himself. Although you could just as easily call Haman by other names. You could call him Pharaoh. You could call him Antiochus Epiphanes, or maybe more currently you could call him Hitler. 
You can refer to him as Nasser or Bin Laden or Ahmadinejad because he shares with these people one thing in common, a deep-seated anti-Semitic hatred, an irrational desire to completely eradicate the Jewish people. Why does the Spirit of God here in verse 1 go out of His way to tell us that Haman was the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite? Well, if you don't know the answer to that one, you need to come back Sunday and I'll tell you then. Verse 2. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why why are you transgressing the king's command? Now it was when they had spoken daily to him and he would not listen to them that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand. In other words, is it alright for him not to bow down? We all have to bow down. Why isn't he bowing down? And they told Haman, and Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. So here it comes. Here's the reason that Mordecai is not bowing down before Haman. A Jew would bow down before no man. Jew had one God. And Haman's not that God. When Haman, verse 5, saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, Haman was filled with rage. Now I can see it being a little ticked off. Dude, come on, bow down. What's the matter? Everybody else is doing it, you do it too. He's filled with rage. There is an irrational hatred here that is something of the satanic. And gang, we see this down through history. We'll talk about this more on Sunday morning. This, Why? Why the Jewish people? Why, why this one people group? Why such an intense hatred? And not just among one people group hating the Jews, but across the board, down through history, almost every nation at one time or another showing anti-Semitic rage, irrational, doesn't make any sense, except that it is satanically driven. Well, he's filled with rage. He disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. Well, let's wipe them all out. That's what we'll do. The people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Gang, what was part of the kingdom of Persia at this time? Israel was. Which means what's going on in the capital of Persia is not just limited to Persia. As much as we could say right now what's going on in Iran, which is Persia, what's going on in Iran today is not just limited to Iran. There is widespread global involvement in what's happening there. And what was happening in the capital, one man angered by one Jewish person who wouldn't bow down to him, now seeks the annihilation, not just of the Jews there in the capital, but the Jews throughout all Persia, which would have meant Israel as well. Which would have meant the land of Judah and those exiles who had returned with Ezra, who had rebuilt the temple. They were, they were threatened by this just as much as Esther's people right there in the city of Susa. This wasn't just a Persian problem. Verse 7. In the first month, which is the month Nisan, that's on the Jewish calendar, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, Pur, Pur, that is the lot, and we'll talk more about that next week, the lot was cast before Haman from day to day, from month to month, until the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar. What's going on here? 
Haman has called in, in his anger and in his desire to eradicate the Jewish people. He's called in some counselors or, or possibly soothsayers or magicians and they're casting lots. They basically roll out the calendar for the whole year and they cast lots on every day of every month until finally a lot falls and that's the day that Haman wants to have the Jews killed. He's planning ahead and he's saying, okay, I want a good day and let's, let's ask all the, the powers that be. Let's ask the gods, little g. Let's go and ask our, our pagan gods what would be the best day to eradicate the Jewish people. And the lot falls on a particular day. Now I point this out because it's interesting. Again, this whole thing at its core is satanically motivated. He, he seeks the counsel, a, a witchcraft type of counsel or a magician-focused counsel to cast lots to see when he can eradicate this people. And as I said, Satan is history's greatest anti-Semite. Satan is the one who's always been behind attacks on the Jewish people. Always looking for who he can motivate to obliterate the Jews. But as much as Haman's move is satanically motivated, it's divinely designated. God has a hand in this. What are you talking about? The lot falls on the 13th day of the month of Adar, which is the very last month in the calendar year. You can see the hand of providence in this. How? Because God is giving Himself and His people time to bring this to light and to bring a rescue. It doesn't fall on the next day. It doesn't fall a week later. It falls all the way out several months so that now there's time that the Lord is going to work His will. What are you saying, Rick? That that God made the lot fall on that day? That's absolutely what I'm saying. I'm saying the hand of providence said, this is the day it's going to be because it falls within my will for my people who I protect. Well, I don't read that in the text. Well, you need to look with eyes of faith because God is at work here protecting His people and looking out for them ahead of time. The hand of providence gang. Verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples of all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people. And they do not observe the king's laws, so it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. Genocide. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay, watch this, I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. Well, then the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The king said to Haman, The silver is yours, and the people also to do with them as you please. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and it was written just as Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, and to the princes of each people, each province according to its script, each people according to its language, being written in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed with the king's signet ring. Which means this is law and it cannot be changed. The king is laying down his signet. It's that ring, you know, and they would put it into hot wax and they would seal it on the document that says, this is, you know, it's, it's the whole thing from the Ten Commandments, you know, um, Charlton Heston, so let it be written, so let it be done. That's what this is happening right here. Stick the ring in there into the hot wax. Verse 13, letters were sent by couriers 
to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, women and children, in one day. The thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, and to seize their possessions as plunder. You see how much this parallels, by the way, Hitler's Germany? If you ever have the chance to go to Israel, as some of you will soon, you need to go to Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust Memorial. And one of the things that you will see there is some of the riches that was confiscated by Hitler's Nazis when the Jews were being exterminated, taken off to the death camps. Part of what was going on, the annihilation of the Jews and the robbery of their riches. Because, curiously, God has always provided for His people. They have always done well. Financially, materially, He has always provided for them. And one of the problems, one of the issues here, is going after their stuff. Hey, yeah, well, wait a minute. If we eradicate the Jews, we take care of two problems. We get rid of the Jews and we bring some money into the coffers. And what politician doesn't want to bring money into the coffers? That's what we see going on here. You see, it's not only Haman. Haman is he's inspired satanically to do this. Xerxes, he may not be so satanically inspired, but he is morally bankrupt. This is a guy who sent his men into the battle of Thermopolis and by some estimates lost as many as two million men. Two million. And when he comes back into his council, into his, his citadel, you know what he's concerned about? I miss my wife. Well, how about the wives of the two million men who were lost fighting a battle that was a useless campaign that you shouldn't have fought? This guy doesn't have a whole lot of moral fortitude. And he comes home pining for his wife. History tells us also that he sunk massive amounts of his own treasury into that battle. So now he's financially strapped just to defend his kingdom. He needs some money. And Haman's timing is very good. Well, hey, I'll pay 10,000 pounds into the treasuries. We wipe out these people, and on top of that, you can take all of their money, all of their stuff. You can take it for their own as plunder. And verse 14 tells us a copy of the edict to be issued as law in every province was published to all the peoples so that they should be ready for this day. Can you imagine being a Jew in Persia? The edict comes. On this day, in the month of Adar, you're dead. We're just going to wipe you all out. We just want you to know ahead of time, this is what's coming. Amazing. I mean, I get pictures in my mind of Jews lined up down the road with yellow stars being sewn onto their shirts and told, you have to wear this. You are now marked as a people. Verse 15. The couriers went out impelled by the king's command while the decree was issued at the citadel in Susa and while king, the king and Haman sat down to drink. The city of Susa was in confusion. What's going on? I don't know. Did you see the edict? Yeah, I don't understand. Hey, the Jews never hurt anybody. They're good people. They're just here working alongside us. Why, why pick on them? People were, they didn't know what was going on. And so much of what happened in Nazi Germany was just that. So many German people who saw friends, Jews being led off. There were those who didn't believe the propaganda. There were those in Germany who, who knew this was wrong. There were those in Germany and the other countries surrounding who were saving Jews, who were hiding Jews. You know the stories. So confusion is at the heart of all this. Chapter 4, verse 1 goes on. 
When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. In each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. And then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish. And she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. This is a horror. And the Jewish people everywhere are are distraught. They're beside themselves. They don't know what to do. They can't believe what's coming down. They don't understand it. It doesn't make sense. And they're weeping and they're wailing and they're fasting. But what is missing? Prayer. They're not praying. At least we're not told they're praying. You might imply that because they're fasting that there's prayer going on. But the word prayer is not used in the Hebrew or otherwise a single time in this book. The Bible says in Colossians 4 to devote yourselves to prayer. Devote. And that's a big word. Keeping alert in it with thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 Pray without ceasing. 1 Peter 4.7 The end of all things is near. Therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer and we see this constancy of prayer that is clearly emphasized in scripture over and over you cannot read through the bible without seeing the importance of prayer and how often god says i want you to be a people of prayer i want you to be in prayer i want you to be constant about it man pray when you're lying down pray when you're raising up pray when you're driving to work pray when you're sitting there in bible study pray during worship pray during the hour of prayer Pray at mealtime. Pray with your children. Pray with your friends. Pray when you're out walking. Pray constantly. Why the blatant lack of prayer in the book of Esther? Why in this one book is there this absolute void? The truth is, gang, and and listen to this. I'm not giving you any points to jot down tonight. I haven't gone through point one, two, three, four. You might want to write this down if you're a note taker. If I don't think I need to pray when I'm able, I will be unable to pray when I'm in need. Let me say that again. If I don't think I need to pray when I'm able, I will be unable to pray in my need. Paul says something interesting. We focus on the Spirit here, but there's something in the middle of this verse we need to hear. Romans 8.26, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, praise God. He says, For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Praise God for His Spirit. But did you hear what He said? We don't know how to pray. We don't know how to pray as we should. Well, well, Paul, how should we pray? Constantly. Constantly. Prayer shouldn't be a second, third, or fourth language. It should be our primary language. Constantly. Now, I want you to think about this. Now, now, come out of the story just for a moment here. I know we've just been going through the story, but, but listen. As we approach God in prayer, there's, there's kind of a natural process in the way we pray. We typically will start in our prayer in the place of body. A lot of times it's our posture. You know, if you think, okay, I need to spend a few minutes praying, you'll find a place to either sit down or maybe you'll kneel. 
Maybe you'll lift up your hands. Uh, maybe if you're really distraught, you're really wanting to focus, maybe you'll, you'll be prostrate on the ground. But the posture seems to come first. We, we get ourselves ready to pray. And, and you can note this throughout the body. You know, when Les stood up and said, let's pray together, every head went down, hands came together, people got into a posture. So we often begin our prayers in body, physically. A lot of times our prayers begin with physical needs. As we start with body, we tend to then move to soul. What's on your mind? What are you thinking about? What's ruminating around in there? We begin to present that to the Lord. And the longer we pray, the more, watch this, the more we move from body to soul, ultimately to spirit. That's where God wants us. That's where His Spirit connects with our spirit. That's where things begin to move. That's where, gang, I begin praying the will of the Father as opposed to the soulish will of Rick or the physical desire of the body. Physical posturing, moving into mindful pondering, ultimately to spiritual praying. Paul says in Ephesians 6.18, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. How long does it take to get you there? I mean, you personally. I don't know about you, but when I first... I need time to pray. If I got two minutes to throw up a quick prayer, I never get to the Spirit. Unless... Unless I've already been praying constantly all week long, then I can bow and be in the Spirit that quickly. But if I haven't been constant in prayer, if I haven't been conversational with my Lord on a daily basis... And I, need, and I pause and I'm like, man, I really need to pray about something. Did you, is it hard for you two to get from the body, out of the body into the soul and then ultimately to that place where you're sitting and listening and trusting? It's like we need time for that to happen. Getting to that place where we are hearing from the Lord, where we are still enough, where our minds are not spinning, you know, Paul says, if I, if I pray with my mind, my spirit's unfruitful. But if I pray in the Spirit, my mind is unfruitful. What does that mean? It means my thoughts aren't getting in my way. I'm open now to hear from the Lord. Praying in the Spirit takes time. Please understand this. Praying in the Spirit takes time. And I'm not talking about minutes turning into hours turning into a day. I'm talking about the constancy of prayer. Well, I'd like to pray in the Spirit, Pastor Rick. How do I do that? Start praying in the body right now. And spend more time to where you get to praying in the soul. And spend more time to where eventually you're praying in the Spirit. It is a constancy. It's not something that you can work out in an hour on a particular day, one day a week. That's my prayer time. That's when I'm going to pray in the Spirit. Paul says, no, at all times. At all times. We've been adding prayer time here on Wednesday nights. We didn't tonight. We moved quickly and and less prayed and we got right into the Word. We've been adding prayer time, 10, 15, 20 minutes of time to pray. But you know what? We don't have enough time on Wednesday night to get to the place of the Spirit if we are not, as a people and as individuals, praying constantly. All the time. You, You want to know when your practicum is to learning how to pray in the Spirit? It's every day. All day in your lives. The desire of the Lord. Well, boy, it goes all the way back to the garden. 
walking in the cool of the day with Adam in conversation. That's where He wants us. Just with Him. You're in the grocery store and you're picking out things off the shelf and you're just you're talking, you're in the Spirit. You're just in the Spirit. And you have no problem getting what you need for your basket because you're, you're just with the Lord. That's where He wants us to be. The Jew, now listen, the Jews in Persia can't get there. They can't get there. They are unable to pray because suddenly their need is so great. They have not been praying. The posture is right. Physically, they're in the right posture. They're fasting with sackcloth and with ashes. That was the traditional Jewish way to approach the Lord in humility and in anguish of prayer. You'll see Job do it. We've seen others do this throughout the Scriptures. So the physical posture is right. And the pondering is sincere. The people are mourning. They get as far as the soul. Their thoughts, they're they're mentally anguished, they're weeping, they're wailing, but they never get to the place of prayer. Well, how do you know, Rick, you weren't there? How do you know they weren't praying? You know, I don't. But I know the Holy Spirit, in inspiring the book of Esther, never says they got to prayer. He only shows us that they got to a certain point and no further. And remember, this is a people who have chosen the absence of God. A people who have chosen to live in Persia. They already had the right to go back to Israel. They could have taken it. But the vast majority of the Jewish people stayed in exile and never returned. And what the Spirit shows us going on here is what happens to us, to you and to me, when we are not walking in constancy of prayer. When the need arises, man, I might be able to get in the right posture and I might be really distressed, but I can't go any further. Praise God the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. See, here's where God's grace comes in. Because so often we can't get to the place that we need to be in the Spirit. And so the Spirit says, I know. I'll I'll intercede. But how much better for us to be in the Spirit because we are so used to praying in that manner. Verse 4. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and they, and they told her. And the queen writhed in great anguish and she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept it. Well, then Esther summons Hatak from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. And so Hatak went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict which had been issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go into the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. Hatak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. And then Esther spoke with, to Hatak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king, to the inner court, who is not summoned, he has but one law that he be put to death, unless the king holds out to him the, the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned. This is Esther rep- replying to Haman or to, to Mordecai. I've not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. That's a great marriage. You know, the husband hasn't even called the wife to see her for 30 days. Hmm. 
Well, they related Esther's words to Mordecai. What's Esther saying? She's saying, you're asking me to risk my life. She's already scared to death. She's already not knowing what's going to happen. But for me to go before the king, I mean, Queen Vashti lost her crown. I'll lose my head. Well, they related Esther's words to Mordecai and Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. And I like this. Well, by the way, by the way, Esther is distraught because to come before the king, she has to have his permission. She has to have him raise the scepter. Aren't you glad that our king is not like that? What does the Bible say? Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We don't have to worry about the Lord going, Ah, Sheldon, no, not today, sorry, you're dead. So I'm just in a bad mood, Jackie. You're gone. No. When we come before the Lord, the scepter, the scepter is is always offered that we might come before our King to find grace. That's our King of Kings who offers mercy. Well, verse 13, so Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews. By the way, there is the moment of faith in the book of Esther. Mordecai says, hey, we're going to be saved. God is going to protect His people. But if you don't get on board with this, though relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, you and your father's house will perish. And he says, hey, and who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Man, you can hear the drumbeats of tension mounting as the story continues here. Mordecai says, Esther, Esther, listen, we are linked in our Jewishness. Whether you are a queen and I'm a peasant, it doesn't matter. We're Jews. We are Jews, sister. And what happens to me is going to happen to you. And what happens to you is going to affect our people. And by the way, there's a New Testament parallel here. Where one member suffers, Paul says, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice. 1 Corinthians 12.26 What affects the one should affect the whole and vice versa. And Esther gets it. She understands it. For such a time as this, that gets into her, her, her head. It gets under her skin. And she determines to move in her position for the sake of her people. Verse 15. And Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Not pray. Still missing. But fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. What a great attitude. What a great mentality. If I perish, I perish. I'm going to stand for my people, and if I perish, I perish. Jesus said in Matthew 10.28, Don't fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Now, to someone who is not a person of faith, that could freak you out. When Dave tells me about a, a... Cat, was a commander that you flew with? Yeah. A skipper that he flew with who after flying a a routine mission and landing and everything went really well and it was spot on, they get out of the plane and he turns to him and says, I I will never fly with you again. Why, sir? 
He said, because I don't want to fly with anybody who's not afraid of death. <laughs> they said, well, I, it's not that I want death. But no, sir, I'm not, a, I'm not afraid of it. And, and that skipper never did fly with you again, did he? But to those who are people of faith, to hear Jesus say, hey, don't fear those who can kill the body, you go, yeah, you're right. What do I have to be afraid of? Go ahead, kill my body. Wipe me out. I got eternity. I'm going to be with Jesus either way. Take me now or take me later. I'm going home. No fear. And this attitude, this courage, begins to well up inside of Esther. Gang, I think there's far too much concern. If not for the physical body, there's too much concern for acceptance among believers today. We're too worried about what someone's going to think. We're too worried, and yet, do you, like Esther, do we realize we are here for such a time as this? This is your time. This is my time. This is our opportunity to stand like Esther stood, not for our salvation, but for the salvation of those who are about to be annihilated, because they don't walk in faith in Jesus Christ. For such a time as this, not next year, not the year, not when the building is finished, not when we finally you know, get the kind of ministry and evangelistic team together that we want to send out. No, for such a time as this. I got an email from uh, Josh Gates today. Interest- well, yesterday. Les got the same one. Very interesting. He said, I was out jogging and God tapped me on the shoulder and told me I have to go witness to a homosexual who works with me. And he said, and I am supposed to begin by asking his forgiveness for my judgment. Wow. Wow. For such a time as this. Oh, not, by the way, let's clarify, not that Josh is wrong in having a moral stand, a very biblical stand, that homosexuality is sin before the Lord. Truly it is. But you know what? It's God's place to judge. It is our place to love. It's not our place to blindly accept But it is our place to love and not to look down the nose on someone who needs Jesus desperately for such a time as this. And man, when we get into the flow of God's providence for such a time as this, if we allow the hand of providence free reign to move through us, that's when it gets exciting. If we don't, guess what? He's going to move through someone else. If we don't... offer ourselves to be the glove into which His hand begins to work, He's going to find another glove. He is going to accomplish His will. But how much better if we are in that will? How much better if we are being used of Him for such a time as this? Well, Esther accepts her position. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now, I know it's... Just hang with me. Hang with me here. It came about... And I'm working on three hours of sleep, so I got you all beat. Verse 1. It came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. When the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. And then the king, he said to her, well, wait a minute, right here, she could have lost her head. Right there. But she got his favor. Why did she get his favor? 
why was Xerxes favorably disposed to Esther in that moment? One reason. One reason alone. It wasn't that he was in a good mood. It was the hand of providence. God was moving. Proverbs 21 verse 1 tells us the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he wishes. The parallel is beautiful here. It's amazing here. Actually, if you you step back and look at this, Esther violates the law, but she receives grace. Hey, wait a minute. That's us. I violated the law. I received grace. Peter says, you were once not even a people. Now you're the people of God. You had not received mercy. Now you have received mercy. The king extends the scepter and Esther receives grace. I remember old Jacob who once prophesied, Genesis 49.10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come and unto him shall be the gathering of all the people. The scepter is raised, grace is extended and we gather to Jesus. We have a snapshot, even here, right in this moment of grace, of the way the Lord extends His grace to us. Well, verse 3, the king said to her, What is troubling you, Queen Esther? And what is your request? Even to half the kingdom, it shall be given to you. Esther said, If it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. And then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared. As they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? For it shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. So Esther replied, My petition and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and to do what I request, um, may the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king says. What? What are you doing, Esther? She's inviting the king and Haman to another banquet the next day. Why would she do that? Well, she's probably running on about a 9 or a 10 on the anxiety scale right now. She's probably scared to death and unable even to make the request, she's trying to size up the king. She's not sure how this is going to go, so she says, I'm not ready to make the request right now. So, will you come tomorrow and we'll have another banquet and then I'll make my request? You got it. Absolutely. Gang, she's scared to death. She can't make the request, but there is wisdom in waiting. If you are in a place where spiritually you're not sure how to take the next step, wait. Don't take it. Pray it through. It's rare that we have to move immediately. It's rare that we have to step out right in the moment. Usually, we can wait. James 3.17 says, The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruit, unwavering, without hypocrisy. When you're in crisis, put it this way, don't be a knee-jerk. Okay? Rarely do we have to act immediately. Take time. Pray in the Spirit. Seek the wisdom from above. Verse 9. Well, then Haman went out. A little insight to Haman. He went out that day glad and pleased of heart. <laughs> He's feeling pretty good about himself. I was invited to a private banquet with the king. That's right. Mr. Magnificent. <laughs> Check me out. 
But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh. And then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches and the number of his sons and every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. Look at how wonderful. I am Mr. Magnificent. That's what he's saying here. And Haman said, Even Esther the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she had prepared and tomorrow also I am invited by her. With the queen, with the king. By the way, in the Hebrew, you don't see this translated into English. Verse twelve, literally, it's I'm invited to her by her. What's he saying? She's got a crush on me. Esther's got it for me. She thinks I am something special, and that's why I'm being. I know she's married to the king, but she's got eyes for me because I'm a great guy. Everybody knows it, but that stinking Mordecai who won't bow down before me. It's hilarious, gang, what happens here. Verse 13, he's still speaking. He says, yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. It ticks him off. Then Zeresh's wife and all his friends said to him, well, have a gallows 50 cubits high made, and in the morning ask the king to give Mordecai to be hanged on it. Well, these are real moral people. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. Kill a guy and go have a party. And the advice pleased Haman, and he had the gallows maze. Now, look at this. is incredible. Mr. Magnificent is knocked off his high horse by Mordecai. You want to know what Mordecai's name means? I'll tell you now. Little man. It's perfect. Little man and Mr. Magnificent. Mr. Magnificent, I'm strolling down the way and little man won't bow. Mr. Magnificent has everything under the sun without the rule of Persia itself. He is raised up higher than anybody in Persia. He's got riches and glory and sons and honor. And everybody falls down before him but this one little Jewish exile, this little man. And it drives him nuts. It just bugs him to no end. Why? It's been, sent to, it's been said that you can, you can tell the size of a man by the size of the thing that irritates him. That's a good word. If a little thing irritates him, he's a little man. Here, Mr. Magnificent is irritated by little man. So as we come to the conclusion of chapter 5, who's the little man in the story? It's not Mordecai. The little man is Mr. Magnificent. It's Haman. Now, just when you thought things were winding down to a finale, (laughs) the hand of providence adds another twist to the plot. Verse 1, chapter 6. During the night, the king could not sleep, so he gave order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. (laughs) You know, read a little history, and it'll help me go on back to sleep. I was so encouraged. I I had a, a... I won't say who it was, but somebody came up to me a, a couple of weeks back and, and just said, you know, what's really great is is uh, we listen to your sermons online all the time. And I was like, oh, you do? Cool. Yeah, our, our daughter loves them. Every time she's having trouble sleeping, we put one of your sermons on. LAUGHTER 
<laughs> so they're reading this history before the king, verse 2. It was found written what Mordecai had written. True story. That actually, yeah, someone's going to sleep tomorrow. It's wonderful. It was found written what Mordecai had reported concerning Big Tana and Teresh. Oh, remember the story? These were the two guys that Mordecai alerted Esther to alert the king that these guys wanted to kill him. And so now it's written in the book of the Chronicles. They're reading this history. It just so happens. Oh, what a coincidence. It just so happens that the history they choose to read is this very one. Watch this. Two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, verse 2, that they had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, huh, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Then the king's servants who attended him said, well, nothing's been done for him. I love this. As we said on Sunday, the old rabbis like to say coincidence is not a kosher word. It is amazing. The hand of providence is moving, gang. The integrity of Mordecai, the little hinge of his integrity, now is swinging the big door of salvation wide open. Now we see why Esther didn't have a piece at the first banquet to reveal her, her request. We needed one more night for her to be able to reveal the request the next day. Why? So the king couldn't sleep. So the history books would be brought out. So the Lord would have them read from that very place about what Mordecai had done. And the heart of the king now is bent toward Mordecai. The hand of providence is at work here. Moving the pieces into place. Verse 4. Well, so the king said, and this is, this is just marvelous. Who's in the court right now? Well, now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows which he had prepared for him. The king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, Oh, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, What is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king desire to honor more than me? (laughs) Got to be talking about me. Well, then Haman said to the king, Oh, for the man whom the king desires to honor, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn. Is this hysterical? And the horse on which the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown has been placed and let the robe and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble princes and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor and lead him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. I love our Lord. And the way He works things out to His good pleasure. Verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, Well, take the robes and the horses you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, (laughs) who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. Can you imagine the look on Haman's face in that moment? I I, I can't even... I mean, it would be laughable if it wasn't so tragic. This guy is so full of himself, so high and mighty, so self-magnificent. He can't imagine anyone greater than himself. And it's Mordecai, the one man he hates more than all in the kingdom. The last name on earth that Haman expected to hear was Little Man. He's so vain. He probably thinks this song is about him. The honor. <laughs> the honor is for Mordecai, and this is an absolute smackdown right here. 
Isaiah chapter 12, chapter 2, verse 12, tells us the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, Peter says, Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud. God is not looking for the Mr. Magnificent in the crowd. He's looking for the little man. The little man who cares about his people. The little man who has integrity and loyalty. The little man who took charge of his uncle's daughter and raised her as his own when her parents died. The little man like Mordecai. The little man who doesn't get his reward right when he does the right thing. And it's okay. He will still do the right thing. That's the person the Lord gives grace to. Why is humility so important to God? Because that's His nature. That's who He is. Jesus, who humbled Himself even to appearance as a man, even unto death on a cross. That's the nature of our God. Verse 11, and we'll finish. So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai, and he had to just be chewing his cheeks, you know, I'm doing this... And he led him on horseback through the city square. And he, he, Haman is the one who has to proclaim before him, Thus it shall be done to the man who the king desires to honor. Thus it shall be done to the man who the king desires to honor. All the way through the courtyard. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried home mourning with his head covered. And Haman recounted to Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And then his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. (laughs) Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. We come to the climax of the story here. Stay tuned next week. Same Bible time. Same Bible channel. But there's one last thing of importance I want you to see and we'll get out of here. Mordecai finally gets his reward, doesn't he? He finally gets his honor. What was his honor? Look at what he got. Go back and look. Let the robe and the horse be handed to him. What Mordecai receives is honor from the king of kings. I just love this. He gets the king's robe. And he gets the king's ride. And it's precisely what King Jesus promises you and me. Our ultimate reward, the king's robe. Isaiah 61.10 I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. Who is righteous but God alone? It is His righteousness that He gives us and wraps us with. Isaiah says, as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And speaking of the bride, Revelation 19.8, it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Revelation 19.14, and the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, it's the bride, white and clean are following Him on white horses. We have a robe of righteousness and we have the King's ride and it is the reward that is promised to us. It's Mordecai's reward, but it's your reward and it's mine as well. Praise the Lord.
if we will live our lives for such a time as this, His robe and His ride will be our reward. And Father, we praise You for this. We thank You for for even this magnificent picture revealed before us, hidden here in the story of Esther. And Father, I pray You will write Your Word on our hearts tonight and take us home. Lord, more than any other thing, I pray You'll take us home in the constancy of prayer as You draw out our faith. In Jesus' name, Amen.